0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Waisper Chen.
0: And this was a Damn Interesting Week.
2: So let's get started with our first link.
0: First First link. link.
2: Okay. We've got some new data, as the Guardian is reporting, that low bass notes really do get people dancing, even though they are not (laughs) consciously detectable. Huh. So these very low frequency sounds, VLFs, they were introduced during a live electronic music event to gather some real-world data. And it describes how the team set up an electronic music concert by the Canadian duo Orphix. So basically like, hey, come play a EDM show at our university. Right, and we're going to secretly cool. test all of you. <laughs> well, and it wasn't even that subversive. I mean, <laughs> they asked the attendees to wear these motion capture headbands Ooh. before turning on and off specialized VLF speakers every two and a half minutes throughout the 55-minute performance. So this wasn't like a, we just happened to do some clandestine testing. It was like, come to the show, be a part of science. Well, and it's not
0: making a statement about which songs from this band
2: are better because they're like going on and off in the middle of songs. Exactly right. And they took results from, on total, 43 attendees who agreed to wear the headband. And what they showed is that they moved 11.8% more when the VLF speakers were turned on. And at the end of the concert, 51 attendees, completed a questionnaire. Mm, nothing like ending a <laughs> night off the dance floor <laughs> with a, a survey. survey work. But they were asked whether they could feel the music in their body and whether the bodily sensations affected their compulsion to move. And what they got, the concertgoers experienced bodily sensations associated with the music, but that these feelings were not rated as stronger than at similar concerts, settings where, you know, you're not going to have these VLF speakers. Hmm. The team then conducted a further experiment in which 17 people were asked to distinguish between a pair of clips from the concert that were identical and a pair that differed only by the presence of those very low frequencies. And the results? Participants did no better than chance at telling the pairs apart. That backed up the conclusion that concert attendees were not consciously aware of any influence of the VLS. And the team says it's likely that the VLFs are picked up by mechanoreceptors on the skin and in the body, as well as the vestibular system of the inner ear, which is linked to our sense of balance. I mean, to me, this sounds like the genesis of the imperious curse from Harry Potter, where you can like control people's movements. See, I mean, that's
0: very much where my brain is going is the nefarious (laughs) uses for this. Because the other thing is, I don't know that it's necessarily making them dance. I think it's tensing them, but you could also like make someone more likely to run or panic or something. Like, if you want to disperse a crowd of protesters, right? if if we want to get really Mm -hmm. dark
2: about it. I mean, crowd control is obviously something we're going to need to be continuing to optimize, especially when you think about what happened in Korea or Halloween. But surely there have to be some upshots to this, right? Like, in Austin, we do not have a very big dance culture at all. And I came from Dallas, where I guess people care less about looking cool, and so we'll flail (laughs) around, do our own little lane. But, you know, if we get some VLF speaker setups to like get people moving more, I mean, the easy thing would be just like get rid of cell phones so nobody's afraid of being videotaped when they're dancing. Or like you
0: could put them in nursing homes to get people like active, you know, get that muscle movement going. (laughs)
2: Oh, okay, Fat camp. Forget it. We're going to a concert, baby. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link.
1: link. This article comes to us from smithsonianmag.com, and it's titled, This Fish Eats Its Own Young.
0: I mean, I've wanted to sometimes, I'm not going (laughs) to lie.
1: (laughs) So, in an extreme feat of parenting, some female cichlid fish carry their eggs and babies in their mouths for about two weeks. In this way, the young and fish-to-be are protected from predators in the outside world. The problem, some get eaten by their mothers.
2: Okay, to be fair, they're in her mouth. Yeah, it's tricky.
1: (laughs) I mean, you know, protein, right? Yeah. (laughs) Raising young is physiologically demanding for the Central African fish called Astatotilapia bertoni. The study adds an interesting piece to the puzzle of how these mouth-brooding females are able to survive during the two-week brooding period when they can't eat.
0: Or they choose all to. All right, hold on. If you got to hold all your babies in your mouth and not eat for two weeks, the temptation this has is... got to be huge.
2: Like, <laughs> Yeah. What, what is she supposed to do? I guess I'm incredulous. Like, what other options does this little fish have? Yeah, it's
1: not yeah, a I great
0: mean... evidence of natural selection. It's like...
1: <laughs> 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 Cannibalism justified. Anyway. Uh... <laughs> Abertoni <laughs> aren't the only fish that consume their progeny. Guppies too eat their own babies, and some insects, birds, reptiles, amphibians, and mammals have also been observed eating their offspring. Per the Natural History Museum, the researchers weren't initially studying cannibalism. At first, they were interested in how mouth brooding affects the health of female Abertoni. In a 2019 study, Dykstra and his colleagues found that the mother's bodies produce more chemicals that damage cells while mouth brooding. In the new study, the researchers looked at more than 60 female A. Bertone. Around half were mouth-brooding and the other half were not, since the researchers removed their eggs. Oh. After two weeks, 29 of the 31 mouth-brooders had fewer offspring and their broods had become 40% smaller on average. <sighs> the researchers concluded that the missing offspring had been eaten. <laughs> Jake Sawicki, a researcher at the Michigan State University and the study's lead author, said, They could have been dropping them, but I observed them every single day for hours and never saw that happen. The only really logical explanation was that they were consuming some of them. Mouth-brooding fish had higher levels of chemicals called reactive oxygen species, ROS, which can damage DNA. The fish that had more of the harmful chemicals also ate more of their offspring. This could have provided them with antioxidants to counter the imbalance of ROS.
2: Oh, it just feels like it's a species that's short-circuiting itself.
1: (laughs) Yeah, like you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? Like either your mouth DNA decays or you eat your children.
0: Yeah, well, and I mean, the thing is, it sounds like they're not eating all of them. In most cases, yeah. they're just sort of picking off a few snacks, which actually if if they have some mechanism for determining like what's the weakest baby in my mouth I mean that <laughs> that actually like it's it's a bit of a pruning of the of the herd, you know
1: yeah. I mean, better <laughs> than leaving some fish runts out there, I guess. I exactly,
0: don't know. Exactly. You don't want some weak offspring embarrassing you in front of the other cichlids. Like, come on.
1: So worry not. I have another cannibalism article after this. <laughs> oh, good, good. <laughs> but anyways, so Dykstra says in the grand scheme of things, it's probably more beneficial to eat some of those young and be able to reproduce again in the future rather than to die after that reproductive cycle and only have produced X number of young. Mm hmm. Which, you know, ancient wisdom at this point. Yeah,
0: I mean, that's how I justify it. I ate one of my kids at some point and was like, look, you want me to have more babies, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next Next
0: link. link. All right. This next article comes from the BBC and it's called The Samurai Who Forever Changed California. Oh. So it's a historical profile of this guy named Kanaye Nagasawa, who was indeed a literal samurai who emigrated to California in the late 1800s and became the very first permanent Japanese resident in America. And his story is just wild from beginning to end, because, first of all, when he left Japan in 1864, it was during the fiercely isolationist Edo period when traveling Mm. outside of Japan for any reason was completely illegal. But a group of 19 young samurai decided they were going to smuggle themselves out of the country in order to study science and technology in the West. Nagasawa was the youngest of the group at just 13 years old. And his real name was actually Isonaga, but he changed it to Nagasawa because he was afraid that the Japanese government would find him. Like, they were very serious about Japanese people not leaving Japan at that time. They also had to cut their hair and give up their swords, which was emotionally and culturally very difficult. But Nagasawa said, quote, "Our education will be our sword." Unfortunately, getting out of Japan was such a huge hurdle in itself. they really didn't have much of a plan after that. They just sort of <laughs> wandered in a westerly direction until they got to Sc- I know. <laughs> until they got to Scotland, where, because they were so young and barely spoke the language and just had no idea what they were doing, they ended up getting sucked into a religious cult called the Brotherhood of the New Life." It was run by this very charismatic guy named Thomas Harris, who basically said, look, you want to get to America, I can help you get to America. All you have to do is come live on my commune in upstate New York and worship me as a god. And that apparently sounded like a good idea to some of them. (laughs) And I guess it was a good enough deal for them because Nagasawa ended up living in the commune for the next 12 years. But Hmm. eventually the locals in New York got pretty sick of having a cult next door. And Harris decided that they all needed to relocate to California and start a vineyard. Ah, uh, yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. That's what you do. And unlike everyone else on the compound, Nagasawa had apparently somehow managed to grow up into a responsible human being. So Harris put him in charge of running the entire vineyard operation by himself while the rest of them continued to hold their nightly bacchanalia parties.
2: Oh. <laughs> wow, indentured servitude much? Yeah, pretty much.
0: And of course, their neighbors in California weren't very fond of them either. And before long, (laughs) Harris and the rest of them had all been run out of town, leaving Nagasawa as the sole owner of a very profitable piece of land in Sonoma County, which, if you know your wines, is right up there with Napa Valley as far as the quality of its grapes. Mm -hmm. And so this 25-year-old former samurai completely leaned in to his new life and eventually became known as the Wine King. He would travel to neighboring vineyards to share knowledge. He was the first to market California wines in England and the rest of Europe. And he was basically completely instrumental in developing California's wine industry as it stands today. And then once the shogunate fell in Japan, he was able to get back in touch with some family members and bring them over. And in 1915, he was awarded the Order of the Rising Sun by the Japanese emperor for his worldwide prominence as a businessman. Which is all very nice and cool. Unfortunately, his story does get a little sad at this point because the U.S. government in the early 1900s was super racist. And Mm -hmm. California in particular had enacted something called the Alien Land Laws, which just straight up said Asian nationals can't own property. And Mm -hmm. for those who already did own property at that point, they kind of let it slide. But when Nagasawa died in 1934, the only American citizen in the family was his grandnephew, who wasn't 18 (gasps) yet. So the government said, well, he's not an adult. We're going to seize the estate, sell it all off. We're done. And then, just to rub salt in the wound, while the family was still fighting the seizure in court, World War II came along and Franklin Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, which forced all Japanese Americans into internment camps for the next four years. So, you know, after that, it was done. Like, they knew they had no chance of getting the land back. Nagasawa's grandnephew did remain in the area after the war. And ultimately had a family and prospered, but he and his younger sister really never talked about the vineyard they'd grown up on or any of their family history. Finally, though, in the late 1970s, the story began to resurface, partly because a Japanese filmmaker was doing a documentary on the original 19 samurai and where they'd all ended up. The vineyard had passed through several owners by then and the current owner wasn't about to just give it back to his descendants, but they were all at least really eager to know the history and they even created a little museum dedicated to Nagasawa including an authentic samurai sword that he had acquired for himself once he was able to return to Japan later in his life. Except in 2017, the whole vineyard, including the museum, was wiped out by a California wildfire. Okay. (laughs) I know, it just keeps going down. The only thing that survived at all was the samurai sword, which now hangs in a much smaller version of the museum, along with some photos that they had made digital copies of before the fire. But... If you want to go straight to the source, a larger collection of Nagasawa's items can still be found in Japan at the Satsuma Students Museum, which is dedicated to the escaped samurai. And the city of Santa Rosa did name a community park after him, which is kind of too little too late, I think, if you ask me. But it's something. I mean, they're sort of finally acknowledging this guy who was known as the wine king. I mean, how cool is that? I mean,
2: just like classic American immigrant entrepreneurial story. That just gets co-opted buried. Mm Oh, I'm so glad there was a an article surfacing. The Wine King.
0: Yeah, well, and at the very end they were talking about the like, oh, by the way, that's not what this article's about, but you should check out the Potato King and the Garlic King. And they were all Asian immigrants. Like he was like (gasps) the article was like, there's really so much to this. They're all called the something king and they're great. Agricultural
2: Eastern Kings, give it up. (laughs) Next link next link. link. Okay, we're, we're going a full 180 here. Slate has an amazing article called How Psychedelics Can Transform end-of-life care. I know this Mm. is a pretty morbid topic, but let's be real. Morbidity has not been quiet over the past few years. Mm. And if you're on TikTok or Instagram, you may have encountered someone named Hospice Nurse Julie, as she's known. And she shares how beautiful and difficult dying can be. And she's also got a thing or two to say about how we can make things better for the many people who suffer unnecessarily at the end of life. Quote, Sometimes no matter what we do, it's not enough. Despite how hard we try to control symptoms for patients so they can have a good quality of life toward the end of their lives, they and their families still suffer. Hmm. So this is written in reference to a recent ballot initiative in Colorado where people might legalize psychedelic mushrooms. Colorado could end up following in the footsteps of Oregon, where in 2020 they approved ballot measure 109 and became the first state in the country to allow the use of psilocybin to treat chronic mental health issues like PTSD and depression. And while measure 109 doesn't limit itself by specifying conditions that can be treated with psilocybin, therapists and healthcare providers plan to recommend its use to treat depression, PTSD, but they also plan to use it to reduce anxiety for patients at the end of life. And in fact, there was, in the 1970s, an early study on psychedelics at John Hopkins inspired by a terminal illness diagnosis that one of the staff nurses got. Hmm. Several other studies on psychedelics and end-of-life care followed, and the research has resumed in the last decade or so, all to pretty good effect. You know, the human brain and body undergo a series of profound changes over the course of dying. And some of these, like elevated anxiety and agitation, are not only difficult for the patient, but for family members and caregivers. In some of the most extreme cases, our only recourse as healthcare providers is palliative sedation, which is essentially putting a person into an induced coma until they pass. Mm -hmm. And this option can be super heartbreaking. By contrast, there have been several recent clinical trials that show evidence that a single treatment with psilocybin produces lasting and significant reduction in anxiety and depression for people with a terminal diagnosis. So Oregon's Measure 109 has given us a start. Colorado's kind of making a start. The authors think that we are on the verge of a transformation in end-of-life care that will touch us all in some way. And mushrooms are the way.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, aside from all of that, who wouldn't rather be high than in pain at the end of their
2: life? Like, I I... know several people and a client of mine in my financial practice, even who are planning end of life care to include heroin because they would rather go out on their own terms. They have a plan and they want it to be as enjoyable as possible, which is, you know, it sounds so counterintuitive, but to be able to make a decision like that while you're of sound mind can Mm -hmm. have a lot of power for a lot of people.
0: Yeah, the danger is then you end up with YouTube videos like Daniel after dentist, except it's grandma after <laughs> oh shrooms. And like,
2: oh
0: <laughs> you just got to, again, ban the cell phones. Don't let the cell phones in the hospice center <laughs> and then right. it fine.
2: All right. Never going to be a content moderator. Next link. Next, Next link. link.
1: This article comes to us from daily.jstore.org. And as I promised, it's about the Colorado cannibal. Hmm, cannibal number two. So the San Juan region in southwestern Colorado was known for its harsh winters. As historian Diana D. Stefano writes, winters could last up to nine months and deep snowfall could make traveling practically impossible. And in the late 1800s, those were particularly dangerous conditions. Because of the region's gold and silver deposits, however, there were plenty who thought they were strong enough to endure the weather and were willing to take their chances if a fortune waited at the other end of their labors and risks. Mm. But the freezing temperatures, sudden storms, and violent avalanches made traveling, living, and working in the mountains extremely dangerous. So it wasn't a huge surprise when one morning in April 1874, a man emerged from the wilderness after a long winter and made an appearance at the Los Pinos Indian Agency near Gunnison. He was ragged, tired, and in need of a drink, which they happily provided. His name was Alfred Packer, and he had a story to tell. <laughs> Alfred, some sources spelled his name Alfred, had been in the wilds for 57 days. He'd been with five other miners at a winter cap on the other side of the mountain. The group had gotten lost in a vicious snowstorm, and Packer, with his frozen feet, snow blindness, and exhaustion, couldn't keep up anymore. The group left him behind. He'd survived off of the land and his wits. But something was off in his story. Though Packer was tired and disheveled, he seemed too well fed for a man who had spent the winter <laughs> in the mountains.
2: Man, plus, looking awfully he... plush.
1: <laughs> yeah, plus he'd paid for his drink with what journalist Andrew Curry describes as a wad of cash. Pretty odd for a man who had very little money when he'd set out on the trip. The truth unfolded over the next few weeks. Two of the men had died of starvation, Packer said, and were eaten by those who had survived. The grim cycle continued until just Packer and one other man, Shannon Wilson Bell, remained. As Curry writes, Packer claimed he shot Bell in self-defense, covering up the remains and taking a large piece of Bell with him. Oh my goodness. A search party set out to recover the bodies but found nothing. When the winter landscape melted away, however, the bodies were uncovered. Mm. As a Harper's Magazine article reported, marks of violence on each body indicated that a most terrible crime had been committed there. An inquest later revealed that it seemed like each man was killed in his sleep. Packer was charged with murder and sent to jail to await trial. In the days that followed, more was revealed about him. Packer had teamed up with a large group of prospectors by convincing them he had knowledge of the treacherous mountains. He didn't that he could pay for his provisions, he couldn't, and most <laughs> importantly, that he was trustworthy, he wasn't. <laughs> By the time the men reached a winter camp along the Uncombargre River in the middle of December, the group was done with him. Despite warnings to wait until spring, a breakaway group set off without Packer and told him they'd shoot him if he tried to follow. jeez. <laughs> oh, Packer then left the camp with a smaller group, members of which would eventually be found dead. When Packer was in jail for the crime, he maintained that he'd been forced to kill, DiStefano explained. (laughs) He asserted that extreme conditions drove him to kill in order to save his own life and cannibalize his companions for survival. But his story changed over time, each change making people more suspicious of his actual motives. Was Packer just a cold-blooded killer who conned and lured these men to their deaths? They'd have to wait ten years to find out as (gasps) Packer escaped from jail. When he was finally caught and tried, he was sentenced to death. The sentence was later overturned, with 40 years of confinement imposed instead. What? He was paroled in 1901 after 18 years behind bars.
2: Oh, gosh.
1: Packer's story would be told for years to come as a horror story, but even more than that, Packer represented a betrayal of the trust that miners had to have between one another. Mm-hmm. Stefano writes, His guilt lay not in cannibalism, per se, but his failure to act for the good of the group. Which... But
0: technically, yeah, Yeah. I mean,
1: (laughs) I mean, cannibalism sure falls under that umbrella. But yeah, so (laughs) it just goes to show you that 1800s USA, especially Colorado, was a little rough. (laughs) Yeah, I
0: mean, if you look at the timeline, this is basically happening at the same time as the samurai guy. So, oh, like, yeah. just stay, stay on the East Coast if you want to not
1: get eaten. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, I mean, not to help somebody get away with cannibalism, but back then, you know, you just had to have one story and stick to it, you know? Yeah, this guy clearly seems like he wasn't a very good criminal. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, if you're a prospector, watch out for guys like Packer. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> Don't let him get a piece of you. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Next link.
2: Next link.
0: Well, if all goes according to plan, this next article from The Guardian will technically be out of date by the time this podcast airs. But so far, things have not gone according to plan, and it's still relevant (laughs) either way, so we're going to talk about it. The article is called NASA's Rocket Launch to the Moon Aims to Close 50-Year-Long Gap. And it is, of course, talking about the upcoming Artemis launch, which as of this recording is scheduled for Wednesday, November 15th, but has already been delayed several times and may yet be again. So we're going to talk about at least what's supposed to happen, and it's going to be up to you, dear listener, to find out if it did happen. (laughs) And we do have good reason to be skeptical, because not only was this launch already delayed first in August for an engine cooling problem, then in September for a fuel leak, then in October because of Hurricane Ian, and then again just this past weekend because of Hurricane Nicole, but if you look at the bigger picture... Lunar space travel in general has already been on hold for nearly 50 years. Our last rocket to the moon was the Apollo 17 mission in December 1972. And at the time, everybody at NASA thought we'd be back again very soon. However, for a variety of reasons, NASA's research got redirected toward other things. And we're only just now turning our attention back to the moon. But even if it does launch, as intended, the Artemis 1 mission is still just a test flight. It will not contain any humans, but it will make a 25-day, 1.3 million-mile loop around the moon and back. If all goes well, then Artemis 2, which is scheduled for May of 2024, will send people on a 10-day moon flyby. Then if that goes well, finally in 2025, Artemis 3 will hopefully actually put physical human feet back on the lunar surface. NASA has also promised in general to put a woman on the moon for the first time during that mission, though we don't yet know who it will be. There will, however, be fake people inside Artemis I <laughs> in the form of three mannequins rigged with sensors named Helga, Zohar, and Munikin Campos. Oh. Helga and Zohar have female heads and torsos but no limbs and are made of, quote, material-simulating human tissue, which I don't want to guess... But if I had to guess, (laughs) I'd say they're probably wrapped in pig carcasses. Because that's what you use as like your human analog, right? I don't know. That's what they always used in (laughs) MythBuster. Yeah. (laughs) These two torsos will be measuring the effects of cosmic radiation, with one of them exposed to the radiation while the other is wearing a protective vest designed in Israel. The third mannequin, Munikin Campos, was named in a public contest, of course, (laughs) and honors former NASA engineer Arturo Campos, who helped save the lives of the Apollo 13 crew. Munikin Campos has been placed in the commander's seat inside Artemis 1, and will be measuring vibration and acceleration forces. Which I'm kind of like, at this point, if we don't know <laughs> whether a launch is going to hurt somebody, I don't know, it just feels like now is not the time to be testing that. Oh, In they're addition- like
2: crash test dummies, but celestial and it's so gross.
0: In addition, there will also be two free-floating stuffed animals, one Snoopy and one Shaun the Sheep, <laughs> to demonstrate the fluctuating gravity inside the capsule. If you want to know how they chose those two mascots, well, Snoopy plush toys are apparently a NASA tradition stemming from the name of the Apollo 10 lunar module. And Sean the Sheep was chosen to honor the involvement of the European Space Agency in this project. (laughs) There are also dozens of science experiments on board, some of which NASA already admits aren't going to work because they were installed in the capsule more than a year ago before all these endless delays, and their batteries have since run out and can't be recharged. (laughs) But they do expect most of the experiments will still work, including a solar sail targeting an asteroid. There are also several thousand small items that will be sold as flown-in-space mementos after they get back, including stickers, USB drives, and even some Lego bricks. Long term, the goal of the Artemis program is to establish a permanently crewed lunar base by the 2030s, which will mark the beginning of NASA's Moon to Mars vision, using the moon as a jumping off point for human travel to Mars. On the downside, many analysts, including NASA's own Inspector General, say that the Artemis program's $93 billion price tag is unsustainable, even before we try to calculate what it would take to go to Mars. But others say the funding is always just a question of political will. And for the first time in 50 years, people are excited to see us go back to the moon, which means one way or another, they'll find the money to do it.
2: All I can imagine is the aliens' confusion when they come across this and they're like, literally, what the hell is this? Right. They're how oh, these we... mannequins
0: used to be alive and something happened to them.
2: <laughs> like, it's going to be like the aliens who will help us achieve our next level of humanity. They see this time capsule of horror and they go, nope. Turn around, go the other direction.
0: (laughs) Or Munican Campos was a cannibal and ate them.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. Oh, man, I'm on a roll today because I have another article about psychedelics and death. Only this one takes a trip into the past. Salon.com is reporting that archaeologists have found a trove of ancient human sacrifices fed psychedelic plants before death. So listen, if we think this whole introducing mushrooms as an alternative to palliative care, we've been doing this for a while, but let it be said, we don't need to bring back the sacrifice part necessarily. (laughs) But an analysis of mummified heads and cadavers discovered on the southern coast of Peru has pushed back the earliest known date of psychedelic cactus use and other psychoactive plants. They basically did toxicology reports on five individuals who were ritually executed between 500 to 2100 years ago. And it revealed the use of coca leaves, which contain cocaine, hallucinogenic San Pedro cactus, and Banisteriopsis copy, a plant often used in the psychedelic brew. Ayahuasca. Mm. The study, which was recently published in the Journal of Archaeological Science, sheds new light on religious practices, ancient trade routes, and plant-based medicine in the pre-Columbian Andes. So the latest research focused on essentially drug testing the hair of 22 buried cadavers, including (laughs) four mummified trophy heads, in quotes. I won't even call them scare quotes. (laughs) But those are basically individuals that were decapitated and turned into ritualistic objects. Using World Anti-Doping Agency guidelines, the researchers ran the hairs through a mass spectrometer, which can identify chemical signatures and samples, and they found traces of numerous intoxicating plants. Two hair samples, including one from a child, contained traces of mescaline, a strong psychedelic with hallucinogenic properties similar to psilocybin, and MDMA. Mescaline appears naturally in many different cacti, but is especially associated with peyote, a small cactus that has been used for religious purposes for thousands of years. This analysis is the oldest evidence specifically of San Pedro use, but potentially other psychoactive substances as well, because two other samples contain traces of something called harmine and harmaline, which says what it does on the tin, I guess. Drugs that are found in that Banisteriopsis copy, which is a woody Amazonian vine. Typically, that's mixed into ayahuasca, a name that means vine of the dead, describing a brew used in many different Central and South American cultures for spiritual practices. And if you've heard of ayahuasca, yeah, it's been pretty trendy. Uh, It's become popular among Western people, including celebrities like Will Smith and Aaron Rodgers, in part because it contains a drug called DMT that can have rapid antidepressant effects. When smoked, it only lasts about 20 minutes. But the experience can be intense and life-changing. Some users report vivid hallucinations like fractal-filled chambers or encounters with beings that can feel like a near-death experience, which is you know, why DMT is sometimes referred to as the spirit molecule. Mm. The problem is DMT is not very active when swallowed because the body metabolizes it too quickly. The remedy is to take DMT with another drug, an MAOI, or a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, which prevents that quit metabolism. And hey, some MAOIs are commonly prescribed today as antidepressants, and Mm -hmm. some of it occurs naturally in plants as well. So that B capi vine contains a lot of drugs, including harmine, tetrahydroharmine, and harmaline which act as MAOIs. So when you combine it with another DMT plant, like Psychotria viridis, the two work together to create a fierce otherworldly experience. And when combined in this form, an ayahuasca experience can last three to seven hours. So the reason that trade routes come into this is that coca and B. capi are both grown in the jungle, which is a big long distance from where the bodies that we were testing were found. So they're thinking this indicated the plants were traded for long distances, signifying mm. their importance in ancient cultures. So kind of sharing some of their spiritual practices. But ultimately, this just goes to show humans have been using psychoactive plants and fungi since before recorded history. But
0: it would be nice if we just could take the psychedelics and then not be sacrificed. <laughs>
1: like <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. I'll keep the theme going. This article comes to us from NewAtlas.com, and it's here to report that Colorado voters pass <gasps> Historic Psychedelic Decriminalization Act.
2: There it mm. goes. They listened. They just heard me talk about these, you guys. Yeah. That's they right. <laughs> they immediately put it on the ballot. <laughs> uh,
1: in a stunningly close result, voters in Colorado have passed the most progressive drug reform measure ever seen in the United States. Dang. Known as Proposition 122, the measure creates a regulatory framework for psychedelic clinics to operate in the state and completely decriminalizes personal use and possession of several natural hallucinogenic plants. The act calls for the creation of a government-run natural medicine advisory board that will develop rules to establish licensed psychedelic therapy clinics by the end of 2024. Learning from the last couple of years in Oregon, the Colorado measure doesn't allow certain counties to opt out of the clinic program. This means individual counties in Colorado cannot ban the presence of psychedelic clinics, a practice that has been occurring in several parts of Oregon. Oh, wow. Mm. The ballot measure has not come without major opposition, particularly from within the psychedelic community. Huh. Many natural medicine advocates in the state have argued the proposition leans too heavily on a government-run regulatory process that will benefit corporate interests looking to profit off psychedelic clinics. It has also been argued the decriminalization parts of the act are dangerously vague, with no clarity on how much of a specific substance constitutes personal use. Nicole Forster, from Decriminalized Nature Boulder County, lobbied against this proposition, arguing anything more than simple decriminalization of psychedelics is against the interests of Colorado citizens. We cannot forget that the decriminalization and personal use protections are the most important part of this measure and, unfortunately, the most vulnerable, Forster said in a recent statement. Many of us who voted no support decriminalization but believe the measure should have stopped there rather than prioritizing regulated access. Hmm. Interestingly, Colorado was one of the first two districts in the United States to legalize recreational marijuana exactly 10 years ago at the 2012 general election. It's a question whether or not the state will turn out to be a bellwether for countrywide drug reform a second time.
0: Yeah, I do like the system that we have where individual states can make policies to a certain degree and we can look at Oregon and go, "Okay, they tried this, but then this part of it didn't work. So now Colorado can try their version. Mm -hmm. And we can look at Colorado and say, okay, what parts didn't work out so well Mm -hmm. from that? Also, going to Colorado or Oregon for a depression treatment is way better than going to Peru for an ayahuasca trip. Mm -hmm. Make it a little closer, at least. That's nice. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We are so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include Saving the Dragon's Blood, The Problem with Spinning Spacecraft, and What Our Teeth Tell Us About Our Lives. So all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Wasper Chen.
0: And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.